0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.
2: Dear father and mother, sisters and brother, I now take the pleasure of writing you all a few lines to let you know I was in a hard fight the 8th of this month, which was last Sunday, and I had the good luck to come out of it without getting hurt. I've been in 3 fights. We was in two last Sunday. It was the hardest fight. Every one has been fought in Virginia. We had to gain the victory. We lost a great number of men. I do not know how many men we lost out of our regiment, but there was a good many men. But in our army, there was a large number of men killed and wounded, and the dead and wounded Yankees was lying on the field as thick as blackbirds. The Yankees' loss was much larger than ours but it was the hardest fighting our army ever had. Jackson is our commanding general, and he had to fight two large Yankee armies last Sunday. He was one time cut off entirely, but he cut his way out by his wise movements and bravery. He prayed to his Lord to save him and his army, and it really looks to me his prayers were answered. We are determined to drive the Yankees off of our field. The Yankees are now burning the towns and destroying all the property they can, but we will kill the last one of them if they don't leave this state. I wish I could see you all and tell you all about it. I trust in God that he may spare my life to the end of the war, so I may come home and see you, and tell you all about my ups and downs in Virginia. Right soon, nothing more at present. I remain your affectionate son. Private Sidney J. Richardson, 21st Virginia, Trimble's Brigade. Having survived some of the hottest action at Cross Keys, Richardson wrote home about the fighting. At the time of that battle, the 22-year-old farmer's son from Stewart County, Georgia, had been in the service for almost a year. Eleven months later, he was slightly wounded at Chancellorsville. Sidney Richardson was killed in action during the Confederate attack on Union-held Plymouth, North Carolina, in April, 1864.
0: We are now five or six miles from the battlefields. After the rout of Shields Column on the 9th, General Fremont became alarmed and retreated down the valley, and the last I heard of him, he was at New Market. Jackson could have put him to total rout on the 9th if he had not been attending to Shields. This is the second day we have been at this place, but I think it is more than probable that we will be on the march again tomorrow. We think that two days of quiet at one place is a wonderful resting spell. Our general will certainly not give us much time while there is an enemy to meet. He is a singular man and has some striking military traits of character and some that are not so good. A more fearless man never lived and he is remarkable for his industry and energy." He is strictly temperate in his habits and sleeps very little. Often while near the enemy and while everybody except the guards are asleep, he is on his horse and gone, nobody knows where. I often fear that he will be killed or taken. Our men curse him for the hard marching he makes them do, but still the privates of the whole army have the most unbounded confidence in him. They say he can take them into harder places and get them out better than any other living man, and that he cannot be caught asleep or taken when awake. He's an ardent Christian. On the 8th, when he ordered me to charge through the bridge and take the enemy's guns at the other end, he turned his horse around, raised both hands, closed his eyes, and prayed till the guns were taken and the enemy put to flight. All this has at least a good moral influence over the men. Colonel Samuel Fulkerson, 37th Virginia, Tolliver's Brigade. Even though Fulkerson joined other officers in filing a complaint against Stonewall Jackson following the Army's brutal Romney winter campaign, the colonel from Estosville, Virginia, and Jackson eventually came to hold each other in the highest regard. In the letter I just read, dated two days after the fighting at Port Republic, Fulkerson wrote admiringly of his commander. A few weeks later, Stonewall Jackson wept at the news of Fulkerson's death at the Battle of Gaines Mill.
2: Hey, everyone. Thanks for downloading the 155th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Rich and I are going to use this episode to wrap up our discussion of the 1862 Valley Campaign, And then we also want to use this show as a transition point to turn our attention back to the peninsula, where we'll be returning shortly to talk about Robert E. Lee's debut as commander of the Army of Northern Virginia and the savage and bloody series of clashes outside Richmond known as the Seven Days Battles.
2: Stonewall Jackson began the Valley Campaign with a reputation based largely on his role at the Battle of First Manassas. Although generally admired and blessed with one of the best nicknames in American military history, he didn't rank up there with the more famous Confederate generals, such as Joseph E. Johnston and P.G.T. Beauregard. But then, the final month of Jackson's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley catapulted him to national prominence. Contemporary writings by soldiers and civilians, newspaper accounts, and various other sources show that it was the Valley Campaign which produced the mighty Stonewall so familiar to students of the Civil War. By mid-1862, the odd former VMI professor had become a towering figure in both the Confederacy and the North.
0: In stark contrast to Jackson, the principal federal generals in the Valley Campaign have been criticized or even ridiculed by countless historians and other writers. In most accounts of the Valley Campaign, Nathaniel Banks, John C. Fremont, James Shields, Robert H. Milroy, and Irvin McDowell appear as clumsy foils to the brilliant Stonewall, bumbling their way through a comedy of errors and frustrating Abraham Lincoln in the process.
2: The dramatic events in the Shenandoah Valley between March and early June 1862 took on fabulous proportions in the mind of the Confederate public as those events unfolded. But it's important to keep in mind, and we tried to point this out frequently, that the Valley Campaign functioned at the time as a secondary front in an eastern theater in which strategic military affairs were dominated by George McClellan's big offensive against Richmond the scale of combat in the upcoming Seven Days Battles, which will mark the fierce climax of Little Mac's effort to capture the Confederate capital, those battles dwarf the fighting in the half-dozen engagements fought in the valley between Jackson and his various Federal opponents. In the costliest of the Seven Days Battles, Nearly twice as many men will fall at Gaines Mill on June twenty seventh as were lost in all of Stonewall's battles in the Shenandoah combined. The strategic stakes were also much higher at Richmond, since the results of the fighting there profoundly affected the course of the entire war, a result which really was beyond the power of the much smaller forces that strove for superiority in the Shenandoah Valley.
0: But nevertheless, Jackson's Valley Campaign fully merits the intense scrutiny it has received over the years, because first, its timing gave it a psychological importance on the Confederate home front, out of all proportion to the number of men actually involved, and then second, because Jackson's activities in the Shenandoah completely upset the Union plan to send McClellan reinforcements from other parts of Virginia.
3: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummidge, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
2: During the first five months of 1862, Union armies took control of huge sections of the Western and Trans-Mississippi Confederacy, including the city of New Orleans. In the east, McClellan was leading the Army of the Potomac up the peninsula, ever closer to Richmond. The Confederate people searched in vain for inspiring news from the battlefield, even as they hotly debated the constitutionality and necessity of a controversial National Conscription Act passed in mid-April. Now that push had come to shove, none of the Confederacy's senior generals seemed able to lead the way to victory. Albert Sidney Johnston, held in such high esteem by Confederate President Jefferson Davis, had been killed at Shiloh. P.G.T. Beauregard, the hero of Fort Sumter and co-victor with Joseph E. Johnston at the Battle of First Manassas, had fallen afoul of Davis and been transferred to the war's western theater, where he added little luster to his record. And then Joe Johnston, also feuding with Jefferson Davis, had withdrawn from northern Virginia and then retreated up the peninsula without a major battle, and he showed little inclination to display the type of aggressive generalship favored by the Confederate populace. The grim Confederate picture changed when Stonewall Jackson, on the strength of his victories in the Shenandoah Valley, shot into national prominence.
0: Jackson's string of victories in the Valley provided an enormous psychological and emotional boost for Southerners long-denied good news from their armies. In terms of that impact on the Confederate home front, what had happened in those engagements counted for less than when it had happened. Newspapers across the South prophesied that Stonewall's victories would yield rich results and praised his style of leadership, and it mattered little that the battles, by and large, had been minor affairs with relatively few casualties.
2: A number of Southern newspapers, sharing their readers' impatience with retreats or inactivity, celebrated Jackson's offensive-minded, aggressive generalship. One Richmond paper raved that, quote, "...Jackson and his army in one month have routed Milroy, annihilated Banks, discomfited Fremont, and overthrown Shields. Was there ever such a series of victories won by an inferior force, by dauntless courage, and consummate generalship?"
0: Apart from boosting morale among the Confederate people, Jackson also had accomplished Robert E. Lee's strategic goals. Lee would take charge of the rebel troops defending the Confederate capital after Joseph E. Johnston was wounded on May 31st. But prior to that, in the spring of 1862, Lee served behind a desk in Richmond as Jefferson Davis' principal military advisor. And the 1862 Valley Campaign had its origins in Robert E. Lee's desire to limit the size of the Union threat against Richmond.
2: By early May, McClellan's main force numbered roughly 100,000 and was progressing through Yorktown and Williamsburg up the peninsula. Near Fredericksburg, just 50 miles north of Richmond, another 40,000 Federals under Irvin McDowell were poised to descend on the Confederate capital and assist Little Mac in crushing Joe Johnston's rebel army. Farther to the north and west, Nathaniel Banks led 20,000 Yankees in the lower Shenandoah Valley, and John C. Fremont commanded about 8,000 in the Allegheny Mountains. But Lee proposed reinforcing Jackson with Richard S. Ewell's division, bringing Confederate strength in the valley to about 17,000 men, after which he wanted Stonewall to engage Banks and Fremont in such a way as to prevent their joining either McDowell or McClellan.
0: Jackson had taken an initial step toward this end with an offensive movement in late March that resulted in the First Battle of Kernstown. Although a Confederate tactical defeat, Kernstown nevertheless had persuaded the Federals to hold Banks and Fremont in the valley, which in turn set up Stonewall's subsequent success. Not only did Banks remain far from Richmond, but McDowell's troops at Fredericksburg were also withheld from McClellan. When the military moment of truth came at Richmond in the form of the Seven Days Battles, the Confederates benefited immensely from the absence of McDowell's troops.
2: Military historians, through subsequent decades, have fully appreciated what Stonewall Jackson had accomplished, and they've used his Valley Campaign as a case study in how to frustrate a series of opponents through rapid movement, deception, and a willingness to take risks. Jackson, displaying resourcefulness, unbending purpose, and a penchant for speed and audacity, in the spring and early summer of 1862 earned the adoration of the Southern people and eclipsed in popularity all other Confederate generals.
0: It takes nothing away from Stonewall Jackson's achievement to note that his valley campaign had its flaws. His victories were sometimes won despite tactical mistakes. Indeed, the primary criticism of Jackson's leadership in the campaign has to be his tactical handling of the units under his command, particularly at the start of battles. Stonewall had a tendency to hurl his army into battle piecemeal, as occurred at Kernstown, McDowell, Front Royal, and Port Republic. This made the fighting much harder than it needed to be and led to unnecessarily high losses. But the manpower advantage he enjoyed still made victory likely.
2: At Kernstown, except for Ashby's cavalry on the right, and a single battery of artillery and a regiment of infantry in the center. Jackson deployed his entire force, a regiment or two at a time, far to the left of the Valley Pike in a failed effort to turn the Union right flank. Fortunately for Jackson, the Union commander on the field that day, Nathan Kimball, displayed little initiative and simply conformed his movements to those of the Confederates, or else he might well have driven straight through the almost non-existent rebel center. If he had done that, the Valley Campaign might have ended then and there, before it even truly began.
0: At McDowell, Jackson achieved his objective of protecting Stanton, but he allowed Milroy to get the drop on him. While Jackson scanned the mountainous country for a way to outflank the Yankees with artillery the next morning, Milroy, who had been reinforced by Shanks Brigade, hurled four regiments against Jackson's line on Sittlington's Hill in a classic spoiling attack. Not only did Stonewall abandon his plans for the next day, but he also had to throw nine regiments into the fight to halt the federal attack, and he lost twice as many men defending high ground than Milroy did in attacking it.
2: Jackson's piecemeal feeding of units into battle was most apparent and most costly at Port Republic and Charles Winder never forgave Jackson the pounding his regiments endured as a consequence. Although the Southern press and populace were united in their esteem for Jackson after the Valley campaign, within the Valley Army itself, the consensus was that Stonewall had done well, worked miracles even, but at a great cost to his army. A North Carolina enlisted man believed Jackson to be, quote, one of the keenest generals in the South, and I know that he is the most successful one, but he is horrible hard on his men. End quote. Statistics bear out the strain placed on the army. Fully four thousand men drifted from the ranks during the campaign, some from exhaustion, some to desert, but that number was double those killed or wounded in battle.
0: One evening, not long after the victory at Port Republic, Charles Winder, Isaac Trimble, William Tolliver, and Richard Taylor met to discuss the campaign. Lieutenant McHenry Howard, who was also present, said that all four generals were of the opinion that Jackson, quote, could not continue to take such risk without at some time meeting with a great disaster, end quote.
2: Following Stonewall's death, he had no stronger champion than the Reverend Major Dabney, who praised Stonewall for decades. But three days after Port Republic, racked with fatigue and illness, and seeing the same among the men around him, Dabney shared a very different opinion with his wife. He confided, quote, Jackson's great fault is that he marches and works his men with such disregard of their physical endurance. His victories are as fatal to his own armies as to his enemies. The latter he kills... The former he works nearly to death. With all the rigidity of his character, I think him a poor disciplinarian. He is in too much of a hurry to attend to the physical needs of his soldiers.
0: Admittedly, Dabney was an amateur at war, but even so sound a military man as Charles Winder noted in his diary on June 5th, Jackson is insane on these rapid marches. Then two days after Port Republic, Winder scribbled, Oh, how tired I am of this constant movement, really worn out.
2: Jackson himself was exhausted. A weary Stonewall wanted nothing better than to be reunited with his wife. On June 14th, he wrote to her, Our God has again thrown his shield over me in the various apparent dangers to which I have been exposed. This evening we have religious services in the army for the purpose of rendering thanks to the Most High for the victories with which he has crowned our arms, and to offer earnest prayer that he will continue to give us success, until, through his divine blessing, our independence shall be established. But in closing the letter, Stonewall's weariness manifested itself as he asked rhetorically, Wouldn't you like to get home again?
0: but thoughts of home would have to wait following his victory at port republic jackson marched his men to brown's gap in the blue ridge and awaited his enemy's next move but when shields at Luray and fremont at harrisonburg showed no signs of advancing stonewall descended again into the valley The army bivouacked at Weyer's Cave between Port Republic and Stanton. The
2: tenacious Jackson was determined to keep plaguing the Yankees. Within days of his victory at Port Republic, he floated an ambitious idea in a message to Robert E. Lee. Stonewall urged Lee to give him enough reinforcements to bring his army to 40,000 men, and he would march north again, chasing the last Federals from the Shenandoah. Then he would cross the Potomac at Williamsport and invade the north, charging into Maryland and Pennsylvania and threatening Washington. The invasion, Jackson said, would send shock waves through the Union capital and force Lincoln to shift large numbers of troops to meet it. Even McClellan's army at the gates of Richmond would have to be withdrawn and shipped north. It would change the entire course of the war and perhaps win it for the Confederacy.
0: Lee was tempted, but following Joseph E. Johnston's wounding, he was now in active field command of the Confederate Army charged with turning back McClellan from the gates of Richmond, and Lee felt the full weight of that responsibility, as the Yankees were now so close to the rebel capital they could hear the city's church bells ringing the hours at night. Finally, Lee decided. With the Federals in the valley no longer seeming to pose a threat, Confederate priorities lay elsewhere, and as Lee wrote, quote, the first object now is to defeat McClellan.
2: Lee was about to counterattack, and he needed every man he could lay his hands on to drive McClellan away from the endangered Confederate capital. On June 16th, therefore, Lee summoned Stonewall and the Valley Army to Richmond. After correctly deducing that Fremont and Shields were in no condition to cause mischief in the Shenandoah Valley, Lee told Jackson quote, The present seems to be a favorable for a junction of your army and this. If you agree with me, the sooner you can make arrangements to do so, the better.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Untold Civil War, Exploring the Human Side of War by James Robertson, edited by Neil Kagan.
2: So by this point, we've pretty much ran out of books associated with the Valley Campaign to recommend, so we pulled The Untold Civil War down off the bookshelf, and it's getting the nod this week. Um, actually, this is a great book. Um, I think for both of us, it's one of our favorites. Yep. Yep. And uh, it's from National Geographic, so the production qualities are excellent. And then James Robertson, uh, well, he's truly a master storyteller, and he brings Civil War history to life here in this collection of over 130 stories. And I think each are told in just one page, and then each has one or more illustrations accompanying it, but each story shows the uh, human side of war. Uh, for example, turning to a random page, here's a story titled Battling a Toothache, and it says, for some soldiers, having a tooth extracted could be nearly as harrowing as going to war in the 1860s teeth went largely uncared for until they fell out or were pulled out, an operation usually performed without anesthesia. Uh, Lieutenant Ziba Graham of the 16th Michigan underwent that ordeal shortly after fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg. The surgeon he consulted, who had been hard at work all night on the amputation table, made but short work and little ado about one tooth, Graham recalled. He laid me on the ground, straddled me, and with a formidable pair of nippers, pulled and yanked me around until either the tooth had to come out or my head off. I then made up my mind never to go to a surgeon for a tooth-pulling matinee the day after a fight. Um, and then Robertson goes on in the rest of this story to talk about uh, dentistry during the Civil War. And there's a page of illustrations showing... Um, What you would guess would be woodworking tools or um, appliances you would use to fix your car, but not (laughs) to work on your teeth. Um, And then there are other stories about uh, edibles and indigestibles, um, about food. Uh, Here's another one about picket duty, uh, another one about war in the sky, about gas-filled balloons. Um, so we could go on and on. Like I said, there's over 130 stories in this book. So it's filled with um, um, great topics like that. Uh, so that's The Untold Civil War, Exploring the Human Side of War by James Robertson, edited by Neil Kagan. Uh, don't forget, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: And then we want to be sure to thank Robert H. in Maine for his donation and nice note this past week. And a big thank you to Roger G. in New York for his very generous donation. Thanks so much, Roger.
2: And finally, we wanted to let you guys know that I have another round of surgery coming up this week. And this time I'll be out of commission for longer than I was last time, uh, last month. Uh, So that means we're looking at the next new episode, hopefully being released the weekend of July 3rd. And now sometime in the meantime, though, we will release the next members episode uh, since it's ready to go. But for the rest of you, you'll just have to wait a bit for the next regular episode while I recover and Tracy nurses me back to health, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. At any rate... Thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Lord willing, and the crick don't rise, we hope to be with you again soon for the next episode when we'll start in on the Seven Days Battles. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.
2: get this here um so anyway do you think that um if things go south with this surgery this week that you and your second husband will (laughs) finish the podcast well i mean just i mean you and i put so much effort into it it would be nice if you and this other guy (laughs) would pick up where we left off and finish it
3: rich